Hello and welcome back to Footprints. This month we're investigating the time when an extraordinary man came to live here in Bath, in exile. We'll find out about this remarkable African royal figure, seen as 225th in the line of the King of Kings of Ethiopia. This monarch was Emperor Haile Selassie. Not only was he a man whose roots are considered to reach back as far as King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, but he was also a man revered in his lifetime and now as God incarnate by followers of the Rastafarian faith. We'll take a tour around Fairfield House where he lived almost a century ago with his family here in Bath. Then we'll come right up to the present and find out what happens there today with Pauline Swaby Wallace. But let's start with an interview with a princess. I'll let her introduce herself, but just to say, she very kindly joined me on a Zoom call from the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. My name is Esther Selassie Antohin. I am a great-granddaughter of Emperor Haile Selassie through his eldest son, Crown Prince Aswawosan, who is a father of my mother, Princess Ijukayo Aswawosan. And that is the direct uh, line and connection to uh, His Majesty Emperor Haile Selassie. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. H- how shall I call you? Can I call you Esther? Esther is fine. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, there's a lot to find out about Esther. Can we just start with his life in Ethiopia and Addis Ababa before his exile? I know he was born in 1892 and was crowned emperor in 1930, but maybe just paint me a picture of him and his life before Mussolini attacked and changed everything. Well, he was an ambitious, uh, very astute uh, young man uh, who came to the throne in 1930, as you already stated. There was contention for power prior to his appearance at the throne. He takes over Emperor Menelik's daughters, is the one after her. So he was really at the beginning of building his, his own state of affairs, quite a young man. But Italy's Appearance in Ethiopia is not entirely a surprise. As you well know, Italy had tried to colonize, subjugate Ethiopia in, 19, in 1896 in a very short-lived war. Amazing historical event happened where the Ethiopians actually kicked out the Italians. So in many ways, the 1936 success to invade Ethiopia comes from that uh, vigilant, how to say it, uh, a way of paying, trying to pay back for that shame of a Western power uh, having uh, lost to an, an African nation. So uh, Mussolini's rounding up his support was not that difficult. So he was redeeming, in a sense, a sense of pride for the country by winning over something that was lost a few decades earlier. So His Majesty had intended to stay and fight, and he had done so for the beginning of the war, but it became very clear that there was no victory and that, uh, you know, remaining in the country would only mean his own loss of life and no one to speak for and uh, gain support 
that was needed for Ethiopia for later on, which he obviously achieved. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but um, so he had, he was forced to, uh, in a sense, for for the greater good. So for six years they lived as emperor and empress in presumably a large palace with a huge entourage. Yes, absolutely. Can you just paint us a little picture about that? Because that would have been very different to his life when he was here in Bath. Yes. You know, he comes out of old Ethiopia, which was uh, a lot of the modernization that happened in his reign had not yet happened. So entourages are very large. He'd have easy a thousand people serving him and his family. Yeah, he was in the at the time in the palace called Gadnat al-Ul, which he later gave to as the first university to to Ethiopia. Uh, so to paint your picture of when they were making decisions to to leave and they left via ship via Djibouti, a lot of the entourage had to be left behind. Uh, the old Ethiopia had, uh, you know, it was very sluggish. Uh, <laughs> group of people who's serving the the emperor and the emperor broken up to minuscule uh, positions in the court from the server to the butler and the, so I'd, I'd like for you to imagine it was uh, always a full house and lots and lots of people to do uh, as we might call it today very few things <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes so Okay, let's move you on a little bit. They came to Britain, they came to London. London was very difficult for him to live in because of the number of people who recognised him. So they chose to move to Bath. Why Bath? Well, there is the one pl uh, plausible reason. I think the proximity to London is, is definitely a, a, a one reason. But His Majesty had sustained some injury from mustard gas that was used in the war, obviously, illegally. And he had suffered burns in his hand. And Bath being the spa, the healing spas that are thought to be very good for such illnesses, is the most obvious reason why he chose Bath. But I'd like to think that he probably, before he made that decision, he probably visited back and forth. And I think he may have liked the, the old historical landscape of Bath and uh, and how unusual it is and the gardens. And he must have found all of that appealing, appealing in the sense uh, restricted life he knew was going to live as an, a, a, an exile. But uh, I think there was an appeal for him there as well. Yes, it was a very different life to the one he'd been used to living in Fairfield House in Bath. Do you remember anything of what your parents or your grandparents said about that time? Ah, Unfortunately, no. <laughs> I, I do not have any uh, dialogue or you know anecdotes from that period. My immediate family, that is my parents, my mother, was actually too young and didn't live there. What happened was when they left Ethiopia, a group of the entourage was left in Jerusalem. And only his immediate family, that is his children, his wife, and a few others, followed on to Great Britain and went to Bath. And so families were separated because my mother and, and her mom, the crown princess, were in Jerusalem. So I, didn't, I, I, didn't ha I don't have the benefit of uh, being told firsthand 
the uh, anecdotes of Fairfield House, uh, I'm afraid. Now, I know that they brought a particular sacred article with them to serve maybe as protection, the, the tablet. Can you tell me about that? Yes, they had indeed brought the tablet, which is uh, the holy gift or article that sanctifies a church in Ethiopian Orthodox tradition. This tablet is supposed to be a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, and every church, Orthodox, Ethiopian Tohado Orthodox Church, has a tablet in, in its church. Now, they brought such an article from the church right across from their palace. It's um, called uh, Madhani Alam Church. Madhani Alam means savior of the world. And it was brought as a protection, but as also a, a necessary article to have a church. Uh, they were quite sure, I'm sure at that time, there were no Ethiopian churches. And I think the idea of not having such a thing was unthinkable for them. And uh, both His Majesty and Her Majesty were very devout Orthodox Christians. How fascinating. How fascinating. Thank you. Now, I just want to talk about the followers of the Rastafarian movement. I know that Haile Selassie is worshipped as the reincarnation of Jesus Christ by those followers, but how did this come about and what did the emperor think about it? Well, it's, it's tied up to, to some extent with the Jamaican history where there was an ongoing struggle for independence, for the identity of the black man. That kind of struggle uh, really started in, in many parts of the diaspora where enslaved people of Africa were brought in. But in Jamaica, it expressed itself uniquely in the group called the Maroons, who were um, black Jamaicans, and they had fashioned for themselves a whole way of understanding who they are. And, and it, it was a movement of struggle to for self-determination, for self-identity. Now, many, many years later, Marcus Garvey, who was a, a Jamaican-born man, was inspired by such movement, but he was also inspired by other influences, begins a movement which was also signifies uh, this same idea of uh, the black man's determination for self-identity. Uh, and I'm making the history very, very uh, marginal, although it's quite, quite rich uh, story. But anyway, he recognizes His Majesty Emperor Selassie in the 1930s as he's correlated to be the future leader of the black people. And that prophecy was made that the one that will be crowned will be the leader of our movement. And he was very, very focused on Emperor Haile Selassie, who happened to be coronated at that time. And the fact that Ethiopia is a country unique to Africa with no experience of colonization only added to the strength and mystery of the country from where this emperor is crowned. So the Rastafarian movement begins that way. And, of course, the one that gave it an, a completely different dimension where what we recognize today as Rastafarians is also Bob Marley and others like him who made it sort of a global movement and more palatable, more approachable a sense of what that is, much in favor of 
he understood the plight of black men in the diaspora. I think he understood even more as he spent time as a black man in the West in exile. He acknowledged the Rastafarians' desire for self-determination and identity, and he invited them to come to Ethiopia to take the Ethiopian faith, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, as theirs. And he had no acknowledgement or not non-acknowledgement of the fact that he was thought to be the Christ. But all I can say is that as a devout Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, uh, he's obviously unable to accept that. But he respected them enough to leave it at that. But he did give them a place to come to Ethiopia, a few hectares, quite a large piece of land in the place called Shashamani in Ethiopia which, by the way, still has Rastafarians coming to it. So he was respectful of them and wanted them to, to experience the free land of Ethiopia along with him. So, Thank you, Esther. It was a big question. He died in 1975. How is he remembered now by Ethiopians? He went through a, an evolution of how he has been remembered. I mean... Initially, when the military takeover 1974 happened, that movement's key idea was to demonize and the person of uh, Emperor Haile Selassie, which they did very successfully. Interestingly enough, now, at least a generation or two later, there's great interest and, and curiosity about His Majesty because uh, most Ethiopian youth are hearing about him through other sources that think highly of him, such as the Rastafarians. In Ethiopia itself, I think we've arrived at a time where uh, his own palace is being now rehabilitated. This is the Jubilee Palace where he lived his last home and residence will become a museum. This is something of a great event, which has been long coming, but for many, many years it had been shut and not a sound of who owned it had, had been made. You know, nobody knew. They called it the Big Palace and so on. But now the, even the name, the older names are coming back. So I think he is gaining more and more popularity, at least even interest to know more about who he was. And I, I hope this will lead to a, a time where he'll be fairly judged and fairly understood, as he has not been in the past decades. And so what would you say is his biggest legacy to Ethiopia? What what has he left behind that can be attributed to him? His Majesty was very much focused on working for Ethiopia to be the best country it can be. He did this by mobilising great uh, effort through education. At his time, I would say the greatest leap in terms of education had happened. Modern education was becoming available to average Ethiopians. So while you repeatedly hear that he was a champion of education, I think it was broader than that. I think he believed and was inspired by the uniqueness of his country, the legacy of his country uh, itself, that he wanted to champion that by bringing up the level of modern education to enhance and enrich uh, what Ethiopia already had. So I would say 
aspiring or daring to be unique, but also uh, meeting a kind of level of governance and education that Ethiopia had never had before. His birthday is coming up, as you well know, on the 23rd, and will be celebrated here at Fairfield House. Will it be celebrated in Ethiopia? Will you be doing anything? Personally, yes, probably go to church and, and, and put a candle, but very private affair. In Ethiopia, there is um, an organization that he had started called uh, the Selassie Foundation. And I think they habitually every year uh, do a gathering and uh, announcing of uh, scholarships that they give out on that particular day. But officially not. Still, nothing happens uh, on that day. Yeah. Princess Esther Selassie Antohin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to be with you. Thanks there to Esther Antohin, great granddaughter of Emperor Haile Selassie. So now I think we should go and see the house itself, which Haile Selassie chose to buy and live in with his family during the years of his exile. By chance and fine planning, Ras Benji, a historian who works there, was conducting a tour around the house and gardens. Here he is. I'm Ras Benji and I'm the operations manager here at Fairford House. I'm also your tour guide for today. And this was home to His Imperial Majesty, Emperor Haile Selassie I, his family, his government and his priesthood during the years of exile from 1936 to 1941. Some members of the Ethiopian royal family were resident here up to 1943, so seven years living in the city of Bath. In 1958, the emperor gave his home to the city of Bath for the good of the aged, and it's still used primarily for this purpose today. But the story of how that came to be and what happened along the way is a majestic one, and that's what you're going to get as we travel around the house and grounds today. So we'll begin on the front lawn. I used often to see him pacing up and down in the garden alone with his warm cloak on, sad and abstracted. And of course, it wasn't difficult to imagine what his thoughts were. So it's 1935 that we're casting our minds to. Mussolini is in control of fascist Italy and he's trying to make a new Roman Empire. And it's the second time that the Italians have tried to take control of Ethiopia. The first was in 1896, when Haile Selassie was four years old. Haile Selassie has first contacted the League of Nations to let them know what's happening. And then after this, he's contacted the Italians to warn them that they have a treaty of friendship with the Ethiopians that they should be respecting. After the Battle of Mechu, the Ethiopian government ministers came together in a council of 25 members. 23 of those members of government voted for the emperor to leave his country and to go and speak his case personally to the League of Nations. And this is what Haile Selassie faithfully did. In early June 1936, he arrived here in Britain. And at the end of the month, June the 30th, 1936, the emperor gave this famous address to the League of Nations. Later, US presidents would stand next to Haile Selassie and they would say to him, had the nations of the world listened to you on that day 
we would have saved 80 million lives. So World War II never would have happened. The emperor warned on that day that God and history will remember the judgment of the League of Nations. He didn't get the answer that he wanted for his country. And it was worse than that. There was European nations that were colluding for this African nation to lose her territory to Europe. So Haile Selassie knew he had to come into exile for a long period of time. And he chose Britain because he's looking at the borders of Ethiopia and he sees they're all colonial territories. So Haile Selassie has already foreseen the fascist alliance between Italy and Germany that would take place. And he's then he's waging his bet on Britain. He's trying to drag Britain into the world war on the side of Ethiopia to help liberate the Ethiopian people. And someone in the Emperor's party says, let's get out of London, let's try Bath. When he came to Bath, he was first here on a two week holiday. He really liked the atmosphere of the city and him and his family received the respect that they deserved. And he took the healing waters of Bath in the mineral hospital in the city. He called for estate agents to visit him and he bought Fairfield for 3,500 pounds. And so began five long years of difficult exile here in Britain. Haile Selassie's name means power of the Holy Trinity in Amharic, one of the languages of Ethiopia. And before that, he was known as Ras Tafari Makonnen. So in the 1920s, the people that came to be known as the Rastafari movement, they took their name from how Haile Selassie was known at that time. And his name was Ras, which is slightly equivalent to Duke in English terms, and Tafari, which means to be awed or to be respected and Makonnen, which is his father's name, Ras Makonnen, who was a great general of Ethiopia and someone also from the lineage of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. In the time of the emperor, Fairfield House was said to be a very quiet house, and it was said that there was a bewildering number of clocks. Everybody knew the emperor's schedule and where he was supposed to be at a particular time of day. So at five o'clock in the morning, every morning, he'd be in the chapel where we just stood, and his day would end at one o'clock in the morning. So he'd work a 20-hour day with four hours rest, and he's known for doing this the whole way through his reign in Ethiopia. This was the family dining room, and this is where the family would eat their meals together. Empress Menin is said to have made this room into a little Ethiopia. So they had some fine rugs on the floor, they had Ethiopian watercolors on the walls, and they brought with them a certain amount of the imperial silverware that they were actually forced to sell a number of months later because of the financial difficulty here but they had two Ethiopian chefs that prepared meals that the family were used to. With the emperor's children and grandchildren going to school in Britain, dishes like shepherd's pie and trifle were soon added to the family recipes, and after a while they had an English chef here. 
this story that we have here at Fairfield House could really be looked at as a source of pride in the city of Bath because in the 1930s, and it became very obvious that they were suffering financially, the people of Bath did everything they could to support the family and look after them. Deliveries of coal would regularly arrive at Fairfield House. The Crown Prince Asper Watson actually said that once a truckload of coal arrived here by an anonymous donator. And food packages would arrive. People would come here to volunteer for the emperor. And also when the local electricity board visited and they, they found that the Ethiopians were sat at their desks in winter with thick rugs across their legs, they decided to waive the fees for the family, which was very nice. And we live in hope that there's still such kindness for electricity companies today. So on we go on our journey and we're going upstairs now. So we know of this area here, is, this is where the emperor used to sit and read. And from his autobiography, which was written at Fairfield House, we learn of the emperor's reading habits. So we know that he read the Bible every day, and he says that he read, whilst he was here, the works of church fathers and leaders such as Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon. And with Napoleon especially, Napoleon had triumphantly overcome exile so it was as if Haile Selassie was looking for inspiration in history to see how has this actually been achieved before what he was going and trying to do. The Empress Pianola, an original item of Fairfield House that's been returned and restored, for us it represents that family time and those family moments. William is going to tell us more about the Empress Pianola. First thing is, it's just a perfectly normal piano, a very beautifully built German upright piano. If you want to have a party and you don't have a pianist, it's got a whole lot of mechanics inside, so the party can go all night. It's like a, a very early computer operated by punched, uh, punched paper. It's got mechanical gears so you can rewind or play. It's got a speed control. And apart from those pedals, which I was using, it's got mega pedals tucked away inside which pump the mechanism and push air through it so you can play a tune. I've put on a, a rag, which I hope is going to work. I don't know if the time's going to be right. It's called That Demon Rag by Russell Smith. Thanks so much to Russ Benji for letting us tag along on one of his tours. These happen at weekends and you can book them on their website. Details are in the programme notes. Now, during the week, Fairfield House is home to Bemska, the Bath Ethnic Minority Senior Citizens Association. And I caught up with the project manager, Pauline Swaby-Wallace, who's been looking after the people who come here for almost 30 years. And we met up in the building in the garden, which has just been relaunched as the Windrush Centre. I started by asking her what happens here at Bemska. 
On a day-to-day -day basis for Bemska, it looks after older people. Um, they come to Bemska on a Monday um, as a day club. So in the day club, they will come in. For instance, um, they'd have exercise in the morning, they would have some craft, but it's also meeting up with friends. They have lunch together. During the week, they have lots of activities that um, they can go out to. They're doing a cycling project at the moment. And for many of them, I haven't been on a cycle for 20, 30 years, but it's such a gentle exercise, so that is something that they've done. The organisation was set to actually just to support and advocate on behalf and be a voice for older people. As long as you're an older person and you love noise, you love the jollities of Bemska playing dominoes, listening to music, talking loud, then this is a place to be. <laughs> and probably dancing. <laughs> and lots of dancing too. Yeah. And here we are in the Windrush Centre and there's this timeline. People are adding to it, aren't they? Yes, yeah, so, um, the timeline starts on 1948, and that was because that's the, the, the year of the Windrush leaving the Caribbean to come here. But our timeline could start even before that, because we had people that were in the war, people that settled after the war. But, you know, because it's Windrush 75, that, that's where we start. And during that time, as we look along the timeline, you know, people were invited or people came over because they had friends here, or, and some people didn't have anyone, they just came because it was for a better life. But um, the story then continues that it wasn't the golden dream as people had expected, and there was a thing, then you know, the street was paved with gold. So we've captured lots of stories. They came, not coming to stay for long, two, three years, and they would go back. Well, by the time they'd find work and they settle themselves, and children, you know, family marriages, and they made it their home and they, you know, they did the work. You know, some of them came here experienced and had to just downsize into something else. They then had their family, but they tried to bring the family up to the expectation that, you know, you want to get better education and better work. And that has happened. So we stand here today with our professors, our, you know, our midwives, our nurses, our company directors, our teachers, because these people actually decided that, you know what, well, I will stay and I will put up with all the negativeness and all the, the words that were thrown at them or not getting promotion because my children will get that. What's your story then, Pauline? Well, my story, I came here when I was 10, so my parents were already in England. You know, they'd come, they'd settled. So by the time we came, because I had three brothers, we came to join them, you know. So imagine coming into a new country that you're not prepared for, you just know it's England, your parents there. Again, not even knowing your parents, because many of us grew with grandparents or other family members. But, you know, you came, and once we settled in and settled into school, I met new friends, you know. Jamaica was gone governed under the British Empire. So, you know, you went to school with the same knowledge. You could speak English, you know, it might be an accent you may have. It was tough back then. It must have been tough years coming over and it must have been quite a culture shock. Well, the culture shock, definitely. You know, you imagine somewhere warm and you're running up and down outside, you're in the sunshine, the food that you ate as well. And then coming here, it was cold, it was dark. You were sort of like indoors all the time. And when you did go out, you know, you had to be wrapped up in so many layers of clothes. So, um, Were you very homesick? 
I was for a little while, but then because I was with even my brothers who were here, because, you know, they had lived in Jamaica with me, we had things to talk about. I think if I didn't have that, then I probably would have been more homesick. But I was homesick because I missed my grandmother. I missed my extended family over that side. And I just miss going outside. But, you know, as a child, you adapt. You adapt quickly and you adapt into your new culture. But then you had all the racism to deal with, didn't you? We did. Um, racism then to now, I'm not saying it's, it's still here, but it's more on the line in a way, the way people would speak to you or do things. But then people could speak to you in any way, you know, they'd spit at you, they'd throw things at you, you know, at school, you'd be calling names, and you're always fighting. So, you know, can you imagine... <laughs> when our parents had to be calling to school and at the same time they felt that they were sending you into the right environment because you were learning but not realising what you were going through. But now we reached the win rush. We realised that they were going through the same thing even as adults but because they didn't share it, they dealt with it in one way, we dealt with it in another and then we were seen as you know, rude, you know, and being expelled or put lower in classes and all of that. But I think um, now we can talk it, and we're all talking it now. So there is just so much that some people went through quietly and some people didn't, so... Obviously, the people that come here are near the ends of their lives, and you've got a testimony project, haven't you, to yes. try and gather this, their stories. Tell me about that. Yes, again, over the, the, the 50 years, you know, people have told their stories in a different way. So we just had recorded them and just had them put down. And I imagine when people come in here, what they see on the walls will stimulate memories that they haven't had maybe for years. Yes, and, and that is what it's about, is the stimulation of the memory, because uh, you know, I've seen people just look and water just come to their eyes because it just brought back something else. So, <laughs> And it's such a beautiful moment. It's got this lovely chair at one end with a kind of 1950s radiogram, hasn't it? Would you, would you call it that? We call it a gram or we call it a blue spot. Every home that you went in, they had one of those. So there was two things in this room that you look at, the, the gram, or you would see the cabinet. The cabinet would have all your nice plates and glasses in there. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I hadn't seen that. Yes, that's beautiful, isn't it? Definitely the best china on yes. shows. That probably didn't get up very often, but <laughs> it just looked nice inside the cabinet. One of the things that the members do, not only do they record their, their memory, but we've written some books. It's a, this was quite interesting, of food that they had missed when, when you know, they'd come here. So tell me the main spices. Well, you must have curry, you must have a scotch bonnet, you must have black pepper, salt, you know, and ginger, garlic. Those are the main base of, of any food dishes that you do <laughs> to season. Well, who is this? Who is this beautiful young woman? That look like a young Pauline Swaby, <laughs> age 10. <laughs> That's you, age 10. Don't you yeah, look lovely? So before I came, you know, I had my passport. That's my passport picture. And you're wearing a very beautiful dress. I am. A little lace dress and then came with well, wrong dress to wear to come to the England at that time because it was so cold. What months did you come here? I came in October 69. Oh. And cold then was like, it wasn't like now, from October right down to oh. March was winter. On the wall are lots of personal journeys from different people and 
the flags, I guess, from the islands that they've That's come right, from. Yeah. yeah. So you've got the first is Beryl Dixon. Beryl Dixon is a very important person in 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 Bath. Um, Beryl Dixon MBE, because she was the foundation of a lot of the organisation that reformed, and also to bring communities into it. So they they then became the community leaders. We're blessed to have Beryl. And she's from Jamaica. She's from Jamaica, and she came up as a nurse, and she trained as a, and even went up to be senior nurse. And Norma Sobers and Eslyn McFarquhar yes. are from? And Barbados. So Eslyn's story, we've heard it a few times. She was recruited to come as a nurse, so she came with her best friend, uh, Bernice Rowe, and they were in a, a nursing hostel for a while. So again, the stories are different, because if you came in that way, you were looked after. But if you came like Carlton or like Norma, where you just chose to come, then you have to find accommodation and mm. so on. Who have we got here? We've got Leroy Desmond Allen, Des for sh- lovingly, we called him. And he came to, to Bath, I think it was, it says 2001. And soon after, he came to Fairfield House. And once he came here, he just loved being at Fairfield House. So he became the caretaker, the maintenance man. There was lots of name for him. There's nothing that he wouldn't try, nothing that he wouldn't do. And um, his story was more prominent to the Windrush scandal than anyone else in this room. Tell me about the Windrush scandal and him in particular. All right. He came here at um, a young age with his grandmother, so he travelled on her passport. So not many people had their own passport. I had my own because I travelled by myself. So the scandal then became... He didn't have the paperwork because the paperwork had been destroyed. So it was like that he was an alien in the country, yet he'd been here for 50-odd years. So and he'd went to school here, his working life was here, so all his life was here. He only had probably seven years in Jamaica to being 67. So I remember him coming in and saying, you know, Pauline, they're saying that I haven't got the paper and so on. But there were organisation formed that could help. So... Part of being a citizen of the UK and not born here, you had to buy or pay for that citizenship. So I remember thinking, well, why should I have to buy for it? I came here when I was 10. I've got my national insurance number, I've worked here, and here I am. But I think after a few travel out the country, to get back in was quite difficult. I then purchased this, the citizenship at £250 at the time. It then went up to £1,000 by the time for death. So he was invited to come and fill in his citizenship, and he did so. And within a year, he died suddenly. So, you know, he didn't get the opportunity to use that to get his passport, to travel on his passport. And Carlton Joseph now... He didn't come from Jamaica or Barbados because that's a different flag. Where did he come from? Yeah, yeah. So we always used to say he was from Barbados because we knew he travelled to Barbados. He said, no, I'm Antiguan. So we had to make sure we got it right. But um, sadly, um, Carlton died from a short illness a few days later after he'd opened this Windrush Centre. So he's another person... It was 93, but he was a life, soul and being of Pemska. So that's just in the last week? In the last week. It was in a, a week to the day that he died. 
Oh, but he did open the centre just opened, before. He just opened it before, and he and you know, if anyone look on our Facebook page, he's dancing, and he was the only one that was dancing I could see. But you know, the steel pan was here. I mustn't forget them because they're the oldest steel pan in Bath, and um, their leader as well is 93 Helen. I feel, but yes, but Carlton, you know, took us on this journey with us from Bemsker at the beginning until the. To where we are today. Thank you. Thank you, Pauline. Thank you so much. Thank you to all my guests this month, to Princess Esther Selassie Antahin in Addis Ababa, and to Ras Benji and Pauline Swaby Wallace here at Fairfield House. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. And for more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. Thanks to go to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I'll see you next month. Mm-hmm.